This episode of the Wizard of Monadnock Radio Hour is brought to you in part by Toaster Unplugged, home of your toaster shades and much, much more. As this is a special episode, we're calling out our sponsor at the beginning in hopes that you will take this opportunity at the beginning of this year to get yourself a new pair of shades, a new t-shirt, a new hat. Toaster Shades is your source for artist-crafted, handmade, one-of-a-kind, unique fashion accessories. Like I said, they're not just sunglasses anymore. We're talking jackets, baseball caps, t-shirts, all kinds of things that will make you the hottest person around. You'll be the only one. This is unique stuff, I'm telling you. If you go to toasterunplugged.com, you can still go to Toaster Shades, but if you go to toasterunplugged.com, you got the full variety of their product lines, and they are coming out with new and exciting stuff all the time. Go there at checkout, uh, enter promo code WIZARD, and uh, I believe that's good for um, $10 off your order. So uh, check that out. They are our longtime sponsor, very loyal. I am about to go shopping for my next pair of toaster shades myself because it is that time of the year and I need to feel fresh and I need to look good all winter long. So I encourage you to do the same thing. I promise you will never be let down. You want a custom pair? My man Tristan knows how to make that for you. All right, and uh, before we get on to with our very special liturgical episode, I, I am compelled to just add one last thing. That is to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Wizard of Monadnock. If you'd like to subscribe to the Wizard of Monadnock and get some behind-the-scenes stuff, kind of uh, get some insight as to what's going on, special video messages where I reveal secrets and uh, things like that that I don't normally share, and uh, what's best of all, at just the $2 a month level, you get monthly bonus episodes. Now, I will say, before uh, someone chimes in to correct me here, that uh, they, these bonus episodes may not come exactly precisely once per month, but I often do two or three back-to-back-to-back, so you kind of get them all at once. So uh, as soon as I can, I release these bonus episodes to you, kind of like uh, DVD special features, everything from that to... Um, Certain performances and public uh, words of mine that are not generally available to anybody but subscribers. So check that out. Support the work that we're doing here. Patreon.com slash Wizard of Monadnock. We've even got more special things planned for subscribers in 2019. So check that out. And now on to our special Winter Solstice Liturgical Service episode. Enjoy. Inspiration flow in token lines suggesting rhythm that will not forsake me until my tale is told and done. While the fire lights aglow, strange shadows from the flames will grow until things we've never seen will seem familiar. This is the Wizard of Monadnock Radio Hour. Once again, we open an episode with the sacred words of Robert Hunter, and once again, for another solstice, we present to you a liturgical service. 
As with our summer liturgy, this service will lack the shared singing and live music of a real service, which is a big deal. But aside from that, it should be taken to represent a wizard's solo solstice service. Enjoy, my friends. There's a lot coming at you. Welcome to episode 19. We ride, whether we like it or not, round and round the wheel of the year, just now finding ourselves once again passing through a key peak moment. Last time, in some ways a lifetime ago and in others practically yesterday, we were here to experience together the peak of the light. This time, we find ourselves on the other end of the wheel. Now is the time of the peak of darkness, and though that doesn't sound nearly as enticing, we owe it to ourselves to gather and experience the peak of darkness together, just as we do when celebrating the light. I mean, obviously. That's why we have Christmas and all the other adjacent holidays, be they older or younger. Actually, there's something about this that occurred to me at some point in the last couple of months that I do find a bit amusing. Now, typically... And indeed, traditionally, whether we are speaking in Christian language or the pagan one, we don't frame the winter solstice as peak darkness. You know, we say the longest night sometimes, but peak darkness, you know, typically and traditionally, the frame is instead that now is the time when the light, at its nadir, begins to grow again. Now, of course, this is correct. But what I find funny is that we kind of have it both ways in terms of the positive spin. In summer, we talk about the victory of the light. We celebrate the sheer awesomeness that is the longest days. But we decline to call it out as the moment of darkness ultimate triumph, now that the light begins to recede. In winter, as I said, we talk of the ultimate triumph of the light as darkness begins to recede, but we decline, generally, to cast it as the victory of darkness and wail or mourn or whatever you're supposed to do when darkness wins. Gnashing of teeth and all that. We don't do that. And I don't think we should start either. I mean, having it both ways is actually a great thing. I'm a proponent of that sort of thing. It just seems worth pointing out that we we do rig it a little bit so that we don't have to apply the same logic in each of these opposite spots on the wheel of the year. Now, much of what we will walk through together today can already be found in short, you know, shorter written form. I'm going to elaborate on things a little bit, but, you know, you can see a lot of this stuff over on the website and on Medium. You know, these are thoughts that I've been working out for multiple months in some cases. It's kind of the culmination of my fall creatively and spiritually. And I've chosen to roll them out as I was able to finally articulate them over the last couple of weeks. That took a lot of time to get to that point. Now today, I'm going to present them to you personally and directly, you know, do them proper. So first, before we get into all that, let's do a quick prayer. Now last time I did a little disclaimer about the use of the word prayer or even its inclusion to begin with, and that's the only disclaimer you're going to get. We're going to do prayer in this liturgy, and that's how it's going to be, my beloved pilgrims. Great Almighty of the Cosmos, you who are all things and no thing, we invite you to join with us in blessing this space as we pass through it for a little while together. For all that we have, we give thanks. For all that which we need and yet lack, 
we ask for the capability to go and get it. For all those grieving or otherwise in need of comfort, wrap your arms around. For those who are lonely, grant the certainty that no one is ever alone and faith in that we are all truly in this together. We ask that you bestow upon those we love most a share of difficulty significantly less than their fair portion. We ask as well that you accompany us and stand behind us as we seek to ruthlessly crush our enemies and bring them to justice. But guide us today so that one day we might be unable to name any such enemies at all. For the end of 2018, help us to leave behind all that is not meant to continue forward and also help us to carry the things that we need into this next year. Bless our time and our chill and our car tires as we plunge deeply into this winter. Thank you for the fact that the light always comes back, especially whenever it seems most certainly gone for good. May we embody our little avatars of you in a way that is worthy. Fill us with fire and love and fuel to do the day's work, today and every day. Amen. All right, let's start talking about some things. For starters, I keep catching myself turning into an old man. And to be more specific, I keep catching myself doing and, you know, more often than that, thinking things that just a short while ago I would have attributed only to the mindset of a geezer. And it's worse than that. It's worse than just being conscious of it. Each time I catch myself... What's terrible is that I discover that I don't really seem to mind. I mean, that's worrying, right? So, look, I spent a probably excessively rebellious period in my late teens and early 20s hating or at least pretending to hate the holidays. And uh, despite the fact that I at least could relate to the feeling for a while after that, you know, the height of that rebellious period... I am no longer able at all to understand this. At all. I mean, how do you hate this whole season? I get it that some people hate their families or don't have them. I'm not unsympathetic to that. I just don't think it's a sufficient reason to decline all of it. There's more to it than that. And rejecting all that is a choice a person has to make ultimately. And it's a choice I don't think makes much sense. I get those who are not Christian feeling left out of a holiday with obvious Christian roots. But I mean, most other religions either observe a similar holiday in parallel or at least don't prohibit participation in it. It's not like blasphemous for anybody. And as far as the the secular, for the secular out there, which is a much larger group, I think, look, come on, don't be a curmudgeon. The holiday itself, we all know this by now, it's very secularized. If that's not enough for you, there's always the solstice. It's not just for pagans, you know. It's an astrological event. And it's one with real significance in terms of how we measure time, you know, in years. I know, too, that commercialization sucks. And empty consumerism is a bummer and all that. But you know what? That's just not a real palpable part of my experience, and that includes what I see from friends and peers. To me, that means if it doesn't have to be part of everyone's experience. I know that it isn't. We do buy gifts. 
we we give and receive them and stuff, but to suggest this is some kind of empty exercise for us to exchange junk we don't need out of obligation and occasionally more nefarious competition, I find that to be almost insulting. If that's how it is for you, I'm sorry. It doesn't have to be. I like giving people that I like things that they will like and find useful. And that's not because I have to, but it's an expression of thoughtfulness and celebration and reciprocal gratitude. The exchange is always modest and very nice. Everyone can choose to participate in this or not to whatever extent they are able or inclined. Having a bad experience with this doesn't mean it's intrinsically bad. It definitely doesn't mean it's somehow indicative of societal doom. To pivot a little bit, We've also we've all probably heard this year, surely, that there was some study that found Christmas music is harmful to your mental health. All right. I mean, let's talk about this. Now, personally, I definitely give my mother a very hard time about her Christmas music. She begins listening to it each September. Like September the 1st, it's opening day for the carols. Day one. My father, you know, one time he approached this as a this custom of hers the way that a, a very tolerant husband would. But over time, he's basically just evolved to become a very willing participant. You know, Stockholm Syndrome or whatever. It's bizarre, and I give them shit for it. But it's cute, and it's fine. It's extreme, but it's cute, and it's fine. And I mean, I've spent many years of my life in and around retail. Being trapped in a store for eight hours playing the same 80 minutes of Christmas songs on loop is definitely a form of mild torture. That is not good for your mental health. The rumors are true. Short of that, Christmas songs are great. If you think we collectively overdo it with the songs, try to avoid intentionally listening to them until like right before Christmas Eve. You might even like them if you dose it like that. What I'm getting at here overall beyond a point-by-point takedown of the haters, is that we find ourselves presently in the midst of a season so deep and so broad and with so many facets and interpretations and foci and so much stylistic breathing room that I simply find no reason why anyone can't take what they find meaningful and beautiful and fun and leave the rest alone. If you don't think that's an option, this is me giving you permission. Take a whack at it. We all truly have that freedom. I promise. While it may not be super useful to throw this out there after Advent is concluded, file it away. This is the right approach for Advent. I mentioned a minute ago my most cynical and misanthropic years, but even in those years, I could never bring myself to hate them Christmas lights. Just look at them, right? I mean, maybe there are reasons. I don't agree with them, but they're technically reasons to take shots at many of the other aspects of our very traditions. But in all seriousness, why would decorating our cities and towns, homes and trees with pretty lights at the darkest time of the year be bad? How? I really want to hear this. I mean, I don't because it's bullshit, but give it a try if you're so inclined. Listen, I do not personally like at all either the darkness or the cold. I rail with defiance and mild despair against the lights dramatic slipping away every fall. All winter, even though it grows again, I will curse it bitterly for failing to grow faster. 
It's a little different with respect to temperature. I mean, once August draws to a close, I'm, I'm usually, even the warm weather guy that I am, I'm ready for things to get a little more mild. You know, it's a little sweater weather, as people say, wearing jeans, looking cool in a new jacket. That gets me through for a little while. But at some point, things are going to get uncomfortable enough every year that I have to make this choice. Every year I make this choice. This year, which is it going to be? Am I going to resist and complain about the awful weather? Or am I going to ignore it and accept it and at least try not to mind? It's always one or the other. I don't mix the two. It's, I'm either going to be totally accepting or totally resisting. Now, just for what it's worth, this year I am accepting, but last year I rejected. Maybe we go every other year. But whichever, whichever one I choose, it's an unpleasant and it's an altogether too long exercise in endurance. And I'm not a fan really of exercises of endurance of any length, to be honest. (laughs) But all of this for me gets suspended for Advent. We have this one brief window of time right at the darkest moment, and I pause these objections. I experience with delight the weight, the magic, the majesty of this time. The lights are pretty, of course, and decking out our world in this way is a positive activity inherently. But what we're talking about has always been much more than an aesthetic exercise. There's a few different angles to choose from in laying out the meaning here but I think that they all gesture at the same thing. We can consider the lights an act of defiance against the present triumph of darkness, or we can say the small but spectacular little lights dotting our earth like stars represent the light we continue to carry within each of us even in a time of darkness. Or we can consider the lights a reflective, reverent tribute, recognizing that the victory of the darkness is followed immediately by the beginning of the light's return. We can choose all of the above, all at once or at different times or we can add other options I haven't thought of but regardless the little pretty lights exist in stark contrast intentionally against the long night the lights are a signal whether we are aware of it or not that the darkness is never total and it is never permanent it's a contrast that can be profoundly useful I appreciate, at least for a few short busy weeks, that the darkness makes it easier to notice and appreciate that inner light, that fire inside me that can't be killed by winter and always lasts until the next spring. Devoting this kind of attention to what lies within allows us to more actively participate in the ending of one whole year and the beginning of the next. It's the kind of light that makes it especially easy to see. So long as we've taken a minute to look, where we've been for the last 12 months, what we've done and left undone, what we've gained and lost and where we're headed next. We can more easily take stock of ourselves, of the strength we inherently possess, of our great fortune in our continued presence in this living existence and of what it's truly all about. Q. Linus. That's not all, though. There's a very real risk of turning this whole thing a bit too soggy and austere. I'm reminded of an article I saw recently. I probably, you know, let's be honest. I probably only read the headline and the preview, maybe a couple of paragraphs. But I, I'm good at being a quick judge. I've learned. Uh, I probably wouldn't even be able to find the thing again if I looked for it. 
But the thrust of it was that we surround ourselves with too much of the light around this time of year. Too much excitement, too much food and booze, too many gadgets and Christmas movies. You know, that the, during this time, we are indulging in far too much stimulation, you know, for a, a moment that should be dedicated solely to the kind of reverent reflection and recognition that I was describing before. But as someone who's a huge believer in the absolute necessity of celebration, you've all heard this before, you know, and, and preferably, at least for me, celebration, we're talking about celebration that involves at least some component of appropriate excess. Uh, you know, in answer to the article, I, this is a big why not both situation for me. Should we not congratulate and indeed reward ourselves for having survived another year, an accomplishment all its own? And even more so if we consider ourselves to have accomplished a thing or two above and beyond baseline survival. Can you imagine? I say we deserve that much. Should we not surround ourselves with those people who are most important and beloved to us and, and also enjoy all the pleasures and fruits available to us, whatever extent that is, especially in such a magical and extraordinary time when the rules are suspended and extra privileges granted? It is not mandatory, but as your wizard, I strongly recommend not neglecting this side of this time. Take these opportunities. They do not exist year-round. Make space and time for quiet reflection and reverence, but do your best to feast and party too. I know I'm basically giving you advice for next year at this point, but let it stick with you. That's at least half of what holidays are for, and never let anyone tell you otherwise. To be sure, there's no wrong time of the year to be grateful and to express gratitude. We should do this every day, all year. In fact, I wrote and delivered a little sermon on that very idea around Thanksgiving. For our summer solstice liturgy, this was the portion of the service I devoted, correctly, to the expression of gratitude. Indeed, if this were a liturgy for the harvest season, I would also do the same thing. But the winter solstice, the end of one year and the beginning of another, demands we focus our attention here at this point in another direction. For it is now that we must reflect on what has been lost over the course of this year. Just in the last few days, I've heard from three very dear friends that the people close to them have recently died. There are people, relationships, paradigms, many eras that were with us at the beginning of this year but will not be joining us in 2019. They couldn't make the trip. That's okay. It happens to the best of us eventually. But we owe our attention, our prayers, meditation, and respect. In that precise spirit, I would like to tell a little story about a tree. Now, a month or two ago, when Papageno suddenly closed like a hundred locations, 
with no notice to employees, I should mention. I kept it together, but only barely. The company was planning to restructure, and about half the locations would remain open, but they were closing all of the ones which were significant in my formative years, along with all of the ones near my office or along my commute home. Barring a resurgence at some future date, this effectively would mark the end of my lifelong relationship with the iconic New England pizza chain. My wife knew what it meant right away. She's got me pegged. Oh boy, she said. You're going to be upset about this for months, aren't you? I nodded. The period of mourning starts now. The next dramatic change I would face during the fall of 2018, however, was much, much worse. A few weeks ago, I had texted my lifelong best friend as soon as I got the news. I, to uh, be clear, I had also texted him uh, just a little bit before that as soon as I had heard about Papaginos. There is an established procedure at this point for this sort of thing. So I texted him. I said, you know, dude, do you remember the tallest tree in my parents' yard? The birch in the front? Yeah, man. Is it down? And I responded, they cut it down. Ah, he said, I remember when my parents did that to me. Well, I'm still not over it. And it could be a while, probably even longer than Papa Gino's. Obviously, I get upset about funny, dare I say, irrational sometimes things. Okay. I can know that in my head and I can still be upset about them in my soul. Just as I can know damn well that everything has changed and nothing lasts and nothing is lost and still want everything to stay the same all the time. I miss that goddamn tree. To anyone cruising by the house, absolutely nothing would appear amiss. To me, all I see is a gaping hole where a legend used to be, where it lived its life, and where I lived a huge chunk of mine. Actually, to be completely honest, the whole truth is that I still actually see the tree when I look in that spot, or at least its phantom presence. I can't easily seem to unsee the tree. None of this is my parents' fault. There is nothing gratuitous or vindictive about their decision to destroy the majestic creature. It had nothing to do with appearances. The tree, objectively, may have been unremarkable, but it was far from an eyesore. The fact is, the majestic creature had arrived at a point at which it was mostly dead. I didn't want to believe this. I, you know, you could see there's plenty of leaves high in the top. But the mercenary tree assassin they'd hired agreed with their suspicions. And I have to say, once the tree was down, he confirmed it by demonstrating how much of the thing had become basically hollow. It did yet live but its size and its position in the yard made it an acute threat to the house itself. As my mom said to me, I know you hate change, but just think if it falls on the roof and demolishes your childhood bedroom. Think about the change you'd be dealing with then. Well, she's right. And like I said, I don't hold it against them. Even if I'm not over it, and even if I don't plan to stop harassing them about it for several months. It's part of the process. As I understand it, Homeowners' insurance policies often get canceled after paying out a substantial claim, no matter how legitimate. And my parents have had an empty nest for years now, but they've kept the house to this point. And they've done so in large part because of the militant, and that's not an exaggeration, the militant insistence on the part of myself and my brother and sister 
and I want them to hang on to it. And I understand that the last thing they need as they near retirement is for their home of 30 years to be held together by wire hangers and uninsurable. But my ability to understand their plight with the maturity demanded of my nearly middle age does not preclude the requisite and lengthy period of mourning. I think I'm being very clear about this. With maturity, after all, one also learns the importance of respect and doing honor to that which is departed. We all know that we all will die, and yet we still mourn every death, do we not? Yes, I know. This is a tree and not an aunt, but this tree deserves it. The insatiable drive of every forest to reclaim its stolen territory being what it is, the yard has more trees in it now than it did a couple decades ago. But it still doesn't have many, and it had, it had even fewer back then, back in the day. On its borders, however, it is surrounded on three sides, except for the side facing the front, you know, faces the little dead-end street. It's, it, it's ringed by these really formidable trees, these, pretty much all of them. They're big white pines. In the back, facing south, there's a hill. And on that hill is, beyond that's the state forest. And the pines stand up on top of that hill like sentinels. You know, when I was little, I used to think they looked a bit like the goblins in the animated Hobbit film. And they, they continue on down the other side of the hill, you know, the right side, the, uh, the west side slope, and in, in this kind of gentle, curved boundary, and they, they kind of complete the western edge of the yard. And then on the east side, they're also there. They're close, the closest to the house here. They're in like kind of a small block-shaped grove separating the yard from the one next door. When I was small, this grove, it seemed like a wide and wild little land for espionage, battle, wondrous play. The boughs were then much lower and they seemed to form an enclosed canopy. It made the little land a thing unto itself. It was something that you could go inside. The canopy now seems to never have been there. You can't, I can't even see where it was. And the grove, quote unquote, now seems like a thin little strip marketing, marking like a property line. It, it's hard to say how much of this at this point, I, I legitimately can't tell how much of this it can be chalked up to actual change. And I mean, I know that the neighbor's done some cutting too, so it's not just us. Um, but how much of it also is just the product of a child's point of view? In any case, just outside this grove, right in the front yard, in front of the house, that's where there was a strange sunken patch of ground. Well, the sunken part's still there. But there was a couple baby trees, and a, a, at, even back then there was a stump. And then at the foot, um, you know, kind of just in front of this birch tree that I'm talking about. Now, the stump itself now seems a tasty bit of foreshadowing because it was there when we moved in and it had been freshly cut. Um, it, it kind of still exists now, but there's, it's really, it looks, it's battered. It's kind of like a shard sticking up from the ground. But back then, this was a very significant stump for me uh, all by itself. It, like I would stand, it was my platform, you know, uh, my pulpit, my perch from which I could command the front yard. And now there's a few new stumps over there to keep it company. I don't, you know, if stumps care about those types of things. It was not I, in truth, who oversaw and commanded the yard, however. It was the birch tree. In girth, even to the eyes of a child, even for a birch, it was always modest. But it rose high above the house, towering over all the white pines in the grove. 
the tallest tree around. The only reason the trees, the pines to the south, the goblin ones, the only reason they rose higher is because they had the advantage of being on top of the hill. The birch was dominant. And not to mention, it was unique uh, for being a birch to begin with. It's still to this day, it's the only, well, it's not to this day, it's gone. But until they cut it down, it was the only birch in the yard. To me, the thing had been legitimately majestic too. And part of the reason I was skeptical about the fact that it was dead is because it, it never had had branches and leaves except for at the very top. That was, it was always kind of like a crown, you know? It was gray birch, so you got gray papery bark, you know, kind of peppered with, with darker scrabbles and zigzags of dark gray and black, and they, they rose up the long trunk, and they erupted into brown, you know, boughs and, and uh, you know, little shimmering green leaves that were always fluttering, and that, that was the spectacular crown. As you might imagine, you know, this treetop, like it, it preened every fall, you know, spectacular explosions of yellow and fire orange and deep bottomless red. Looking up at that crown, and I can't possibly tell you how many times I gazed up at it, how many cumulative hours of my life my gaze lingered over all those decades. It seemed as if it was designated a pavilion pole holding up the dome of the sky. It seemed a fitting home for someone like the Lord of the Eagles or some sort of local angel, even if I don't remember anything but maybe robins actually nesting in it. Come to think of it, I think it itself served, solid and unmoving, as a sort of guardian angel to me. Maybe I never really realized that till now. Maybe that's part of why this is so hard. Why I can still feel its presence there, even though my eyes can't see it. I don't know its history and I don't know its age. Truth be told, I haven't attempted to um, count this. Well, in fact, I did attempt. I went out and tried. The stump is missing. Nobody knows where it is. There's other stumps there. It's very strange. I don't know if it's uh, this is miraculous phenomenon potentially or not, but yeah, the stump is gone. So I, I, or I, we haven't uncovered it or something. I don't know. But I can't count the rings. I presume that at least some of the wood was decent because it seems like some of the tree is gone. Um, it, it didn't seem to have all been left. Uh, <sighs> confusing. I don't, I don't understand. Um, it's a tree graveyard in that part of the yard right now. Uh, but if at the end of its life, it remained the floral ruler of that one sacred acre of land, and I suspect it did, it would only have been out of deferential assent from its potential rivals, because at this point it no longer dominated on the basis of size. It was no longer even the only deciduous tree in the yard, so it wasn't even as unique as it once was. Um... As far as I could tell, it remained more or less the same height as it was a quarter century ago, but the white pines next to it, in the grove, and including, faithfully, the one or two or three, I think, with whom it shared the gallows a few weeks ago, they had continued to grow taller. They eclipsed it. As far as I know, like I said, the only birch in the yard, but the reclaiming efforts of the forest that I alluded to earlier definitely led to a burgeoning movement of of the young upstart deciduous trees. They're not as big yet, but, you know, they kind of made challenge the claim to exclusivity for sure. Um, You know, and they're mainly on the west side of the driveway, but 
you know, there's also kind of the little young adult trees that started coming up by the stump of this one. I never wanted to accept that it was half dead and dying, but if I'm being honest, you could tell in its final years that it was giving way. It was giving way a little bit to much the same sort of frailty you see in many aging humans. Now, surely the trunk hadn't actually grown thinner. I don't actually think that that can happen. Uh, but it just had this certain sense of gauntness, like it was tired. As though it lacked the full measure of bold fire that it once held at its core, that it exuded as part of its rule. I raise a glass to you, my friend, the tree. Thank you for blessing my yard and my life with your presence and power and protection. I'm sorry you had to go. I'm sorry you had to go. Though we all hope to avoid meeting our own ends from an actual chainsaw, some version of this fate awaits any of us who dare to grow old. Along the way, we will encounter many mini-deaths, like the disappearance of important pillars of our younger days, be they ordinary, extraordinary trees, or regional pizza chains. As we might one day hope to do, the tree remained proud and dignified, even as it lost its strength. Although, whatever its ultimate fate, I'm not sure we can say the same about Papaginos. Now, if I had my way, though, I probably would have allowed you to continue to stick around and take out my old bedroom. I would have cursed you then, but I would not have been able to stop loving you. I will continue to mourn you and harass my parents about you for the next several months, and until my dying day, or until, heaven forbid, new owners prevent me from standing vigil in their yard, I will never fail to see you there, in that eternal form that belongs to all things, even us, especially after they have gone. Let's pause a few moments to pay our respects where respects are due. Close your eyes, assuming you're not driving. I'd like to lift up Jonathan and Todd and David, three of my dearest friends who are all grieving the recent loss of loved ones. Grant them all serenity and perspective and peace. Now let's all consider any people, loved or perhaps not, in our lives, those who came with us to 2018, but will not be continuing on to 2019. Let's hold them a minute and then let them stay behind. Now picture all of the conditions, dead ways of thinking and living, rejected or failed behavioral habits, outgrown limitations, be they self-imposed or otherwise, and declining or terminated relationships that came with us to 2018 or appeared to us over the course of that year, but that will not be continuing on to 2019. Let's hold them for a minute and then let them stay behind. 
Now there are people, relationships, and things. Now there are people, relationships, and things which you hadn't realized until just now, but you don't want to bring them with you to 2019. They'll be popping into your head, whether you like it or not, right about now. You know what they are, even if you don't like it. Don't worry about whether or not they'll willingly stay behind. That's your call to make. Make the call. Hold them now, for just another minute, and then gently require them to stay behind. Breathe deep. Look forward over the threshold of the latent 2019. Feel how much lighter you feel now that you've stopped carrying a few things. Breathe deep and appreciate the reprieve. But know it's just temporary. We didn't put all those things down and leave those things behind so that we could take it easy and travel light. When we have the choice, we make it to free up space in our arms for the things 2019 would have us pick up. Even as we enjoy the springy feeling of a thin load, pause now to really look forward to the things we'll soon pick up. Again, close your eyes if they aren't closed already. If you're driving, pull over so that you can close your eyes. Be intentional and say goodbye to the dying year. Feel it, see it, Close itself off in a snap of marked completion. 2018 is known and done. Look now ahead. We can see 2019 even if we don't totally know what it really looks like. We know, at least, that it's there and that we're plunging the hell right into it. There's a new year right in front of us and we're about to be in it. Burn that into your mind. Burn it so good you hear a hiss. Got it? Now open your eyes. Now we're going to go a little out of order here and skip back in time to the beginning of the fall. And I want to do this because I've been thinking on this and wrestling with it for this entire time, and it's just begging to come out. We all know by now that little things have a funny way of getting under my skin, but even after a lifetime of this, I am still pretty terrible at anticipating which things they will be and when. I spent all fall in the grips of one of them, and this one really sneaked up and clubbed me good from behind. It was parents' night in mid-September at Pine Hill, the magical Waldorf school where my son has been going for daycare and preschool practically since he was born. We got to hang out in his classroom with his teachers and the other parents. Sitting on the floor, the teachers took us through the circle time ritual the kids do every morning as part of the start to their day. Gentle, seasonally curated songs and chants. And... 
You know, describing it like that honestly doesn't come close to conveying how truly great this is. As is usually the case when I spend any time at the Waldorf School, I find myself longing very deeply to incorporate these things into my own life. How much better off would I, or perhaps all of us, be if we began our day with our families and or colleagues sitting in a circle and welcoming the hours ahead with song and affirmation? Doesn't that sound cool? I mean, ridiculous hippie thoughts, I know. But if you think it's crazy, I'm willing to bet you've never experienced circle time. The teachers also spent a fair amount of time focused on the upcoming holiday of Michaelmas, which I like to call Michaelmas, and how the children would be observing it and why. They gave us photocopied handouts that explain these concepts in further detail, and there's a passage in one of them that hasn't left my mind in the three months since. From the book... Waldorf Education, a Family Guide, in a chapter titled Michaelmas, authored by Karen Rivers. Here's a quote. The equinox is for us a turning point, a change in the relation of light and darkness in the world around us. On September 29th, the autumn festival, traditionally known as Michaelmas, is celebrated. This festival is named after the Archangel Michael, conqueror of the powers of darkness, the harvesters of the deeds of human souls. It is at this time that the image of Michael with the dragon appears before us as a mighty imagination, challenging us to develop strong, brave, free wills, to overcome love of ease, anxiety, and fear. This demands interactivity, a renewal of the soul which is brought to consciousness in the Michaelmas festival, the festival of the will. These images truly symbolize the challenge we face in the autumn season. They speak to our deep need to carry an inner light of wisdom and courage at this time when the light is diminishing. Through strength of will, interactivity of selfless consciousness, we bring light to the darkening time. These are very challenging times. The antisocial forces are emerging everywhere. May we gain insight, courage, and truth at this Michaelmas time to bring light to our inner life, our community, and the world in these times of darkness. That's the end of the quote. And who boy, there's a lot to unpack there. That's a, that's a heavy statement right there. My first thought was how wonderful it is to introduce young children to these concepts, heavy though they may be. I mean, perhaps a four-year-old can't grasp the total weight of all that, undoubtedly for the best, but just imagine how much conscious courage and healthy will a 17-year-old might possess if you start talking to them about it when they're four. Now, from there, in quick succession, it was, how much better off would I have been had I received this kind of foundation from the very beginning? No blame or shade towards my parents or anyone else, but how much did I miss out on by never hearing any of this? Then finally, oh shit, I need to learn this just as much as my four-year-old does. I do. The circle time is one thing, but it seems what I need much more, much more urgently, is to participate myself in something like Michaelmas, to take the appropriate time and appreciation of these things as we head into the season of darkness. But am I capable? I consider myself already to possess a pretty strong, brave, and free will. But is it enough to overcome love of ease, anxiety, and fear? I mean, sometimes, 
Probably, but always? Even, you know, anxiety and fear. I've been doing all right with those in recent years. But love of ease? Love of ease? Man, if we are judging people by the level of their love of ease, I am in big trouble. These are words that kind of boxed me in the ears. I can still feel it, you know, the ringing there. You know, no lie. I've been trying not just to grapple with this, but to write about it for three months now. And I've been all bottled up and tangled up about it. And I'll be damned if that second paragraph quoted above doesn't just perfectly nail what I believe my responsibility as a person and a citizen and even a wizard really is during this life. To use strength of will and selfless consciousness to bring light to a dark ass age. And though I may be comfortable with the robustness of my will, am I really equipped and prepared and sufficiently resolved to actually execute on that responsibility? After three months of inner wrestling, all I can say I've come up with in answer to that is, probably, I think so, I hope so. I don't mean that in a negative way, even if I myself find it funny that that's as far as I've gotten. I mean, three months, you know? (laughs) Let's be real here. I'm not sure it ever gets more definitive than that. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm off the hook here. Um, You know, at least maybe that's the case for anyone who didn't start learning this at age four. So, you know, I wrestled, but did I manage to act on the prescription to set about this fall intentionally with inner activity toward renewal of the soul? Well, sure I did. Even if I don't think the work is as complete as it should be, or I'd like it to be, especially as we cruise into this new year here. But so it goes. And I still have the whole winter ahead. We can use this as a time to cultivate that inner light, to learn what it means to renew my soul and orient toward a courage and responsibility that stands against the prevailing currents. What else can one hope for? Furthermore, I have the rest of my life ahead of me to figure out what it means to stand tall in the night against the dragon we are called to destroy. Now, last year in a podcast episode, in fact, pretty much exactly a year ago, I read an email nearly in its entirety. Its author was to be my then three-year-old's new preschool teacher. She was one of the teachers we just talked about. But at the time, you know, though Kelly knew her from childhood, you know, the Waldorf community being what it is, I had never met her. And uh, this was my first impression. She was writing this email to introduce herself and also to introduce us to the concept of the lantern walk ritual, which, you know, for these folks is kind of the next thing after Michaelmas. It's the next little event on the calendar. You know, uh, at the time, so when it was to be held a couple days hence, she was going to lead it. And that would be really the first time I would meet her. So at the time I'm encountering this, you know, Kelly and I are in the car on the highway, blazing our way to Boston to see Dead and Company at the Garden. And she thought I should hear it. So she read it out loud to me as I drove and, you know, it, it moved me to tears. And I have to read at least some of this verbatim again. I have to. So, and I quote from the email. As we enter the cold, darker days of our calendar year, we may find solace and strength in contemplating the light that we all carry within ourselves. This is a time of letting go and giving over to the season's passing. The crops have all been harvested. With an abundance of food and wood, we store away the land's gifts for the long, dark winter ahead. 
Now the land is going to sleep. All in nature is beginning to die and wither on the vine, only to be reborn in spring. It is also a season of trust, one that speaks to us to slow down and to mediate on the mystery, excuse me, to meditate on the mystery and drama about to unfold. At this time of receiving, trusting, and letting go, we can find within ourselves an inner strength and light that we can, t- that we can in turn share with the world. This gift, given with deep reverence and love, is truly the message of this festival. End quote. She went on to explain the joy with which they would make the lanterns together, the importance of holding the ceremony at dusk, the magical time when sun's light has gently faded, but the veil between light and dark is still visible, barely illuminating their way. That's another quote, uh, by the way. And that the mood of the lantern walk itself would be quiet, joyful, peaceful reverence with the intent of leaving the children, quote, with a feeling that, it, that all is well with the world that love and kindness can heal, and that with their own light they can find their way, end quote. Wow, I mean, yeah. So at the time, I didn't know this person yet, but I knew I wasn't sure I was capable on my own of giving a child or anyone that feeling. That is quite a feeling. You know, maybe Kelly can do that, but I'm not sure about me. It was suddenly clear that it is really important to make that happen. And I was instantly grateful that someone, (laughs) professional even, was there to help or even just to clue me in. And in all the time since, I haven't shaken that, which hopefully, for me, represents a start. This year, the lantern walk was scheduled for a Friday, but it was cold and pouring rain, so it got pushed to Saturday. Then it was too windy, so it was pushed again to Sunday. When Sunday came, my son was throwing up. I try to be cool and rational about these things most of the time. Kids get sick, and they get sick a lot, and they have to sometimes miss things because of it. Sometimes we all miss things because of it. It happens a few times a year, even in a good year. But while my youngest and his older brothers, who were slated to attend with us, took it pretty hard when we told them we weren't going to be able to go, I think I may have taken it the hardest. I know how beautiful and meaningful this ritual is, not just from last year's email, but from the experience itself, which absolutely lived up to the hype in its own very quiet and austere way. It wasn't just that these concepts are crucial to young children, and they are, but also I knew how he had helped make his pretty lantern and how much he wanted to carry it with his close friends. You know, they have like a little gang and his beloved teachers all together. This was a pretty big bummer on the scale of things. Worse, though I tried not to dwell on it, next year is real kindergarten and we almost definitely can't swing the tuition to keep him among the Waldorfs. Waldorfy, Waldorfos, whatever the correct term is. That is enough by itself some days to break my heart a little. It it really does. Um, But here, what kind of crushed me is that this would have been his final lantern walk at Pine Hill and that he had missed it and wouldn't get to experience it one last time or any time again. It wasn't going to leave a scar on him or anything like that. There are much worse things. And so as to not make it worse, 
I made sure not to let on how truly disappointing I thought that this was, like deep, deep down. But, you know, you want your kids to have as much happiness and joy and magic as possible, even when you know it can't last. When you know eventually they're going to have to confront some of the more grim aspects and angles of our world, and perhaps especially when you know this, as I am painfully aware of all the time, you want them to have as much goodness in their life as they can have. You want them to have more than you have or ever got. And I had it great, but I still want him to have every last drop of it that he has available. Like I said, these things happen. The many big and little disappointments in life and all that. This time, I'm happy to say, that's not actually the end of the story. Like a little Advent miracle. Because within a couple of days, I saw on Facebook that the sainted people who do Children in the Arts Festival each May, which I prefer to call the Children of the Arts, which is just a much stronger title, but that's another story. These folks were organizing a Peterborough Lantern Walk Parade. And they weren't just like throwing the idea out there, slapping this thing together. They were actually bringing in a professional, a ringer, uh, we might call them, from Vermont, to advise the townspeople, mainly the children, in the construction of these lanterns and mass. And these efforts, these lantern building efforts, they were launched and coordinated across the public school system and in several sessions scheduled at the library. Better still, the parade would conclude in Putnam Park with the annual lighting of the town's Christmas tree. Soon afterward, I learned that the parade was time to start following the community sing of Handel's Messiah at the UU Church, and I knew we'd all been granted a reprieve. It would surely be different, but we would get our magical lantern walk after all. My youngest would get the chance to use the lantern he had prepared and come to love, and all of us would participate in that beautiful pageant to recognize, hold up, announce, and celebrate the light we all carry within and the eternal fact that it doesn't go out even when the darkness is strongest. And so would I. The day came, the night before the official first Sunday of Advent, Advent Eve, as it were, we spent the late morning and indeed a good chunk of the early afternoon in Wilton at the Pine Hill Holiday Fair, an event that always proves magical. In fact, that day, as we walked up the hill after parking the car, a couple we knew from church was driving down the hill making their exit. Is it as magical as usual, I asked? It's more magical than usual, the driver replied with light cheer, and he had been right. Within the walls of that enchanted schoolhouse, we found new friends and old, chatted about syrup and fish, and picked up a few little things from the delightful array of vendors. In other years, the kids often wanted to leave before I did, but not this time. We made many different crafts at the appropriate stations. I myself even made a gnome. By the time we got home, there was scarcely time for a snack before walking down the road to get a seat at the always crowded Community Messiah Sing. I sat for just over an hour in the white-numbered box pew, just being blown away as I always am by this work, especially, you know, when it's performed locally by community members in the church to which I belong. Now, my son tolerated this part, barely, while I and my wife simultaneously contained him while being moved right up through, worthy is the lamb, and amen. Much more on this later. 
Feeling spiritually on fire, we walked from the church right next door, walking around to the back parking lot of People's Bank, carrying the lantern, of course, and we were floored. It seemed like the whole town was back here, and the organizers were running quite the operation, handing out spare lanterns and long rods to hold them in an efficient fashion. There were hundreds of people here. Everyone was carrying a lantern unique to them. The already well-lit parking lot was positively ablaze with little earthbound starlight, and the mood was just as sparkling as the visuals. We soon heard sounds of drums, then more pieces of the marching band. There was even a long Chinese New Year-type dragon. Why the hell was there a dragon? Nobody knows, but it was great, and it filled us with joy. I couldn't tell you how cold it was that night because I felt perfectly warm the entire time. Together, seemingly as an entire town, we slowly made the procession across Main Street and down Grove the few hundred yards to Putnam Park, passing the townhouse and crossing the New Benusset by the waterfall. It's hard to put it into words. A good friend of mine said she had been moved to tears by this, and I nearly was as well when we could see, just over the brook, what awaited us in the park. It wasn't just hundreds of lights carried by people, you know, all those people who had been ahead of us in the parade, but these beautiful people responsible for this whole episode, they, they really paid attention to detail because they went out and they dotted the entire forested hill above the park with lights also. It was like a school of stars moving, streaming into the dark, snow-colored, covered star field. Everyone marched the long way around the back of the park, beneath those blinking forest lights above, before taking a spot somewhere around the Christmas tree. As I had known it would be, this was indeed a very different kind of lantern walk than the one conducted at the school, which emphasizes that quiet part of quiet joy and encourages parents afterwards to bring the children home in near silence and spend the evening in a comforting, warm glow. Instead, this was loud and boisterous. It would certainly not be followed by a silent evening. And while, you know, I respect the concept behind the reverent version, but I also think there are other absolutely legitimate routes towards arriving at the same place. And perhaps this was a bit more. This was our town, like our entire town, joining together in this one place for an official, community-encompassing beginning to the Christmas season. Everybody was there. We shared in the moment and the feeling. I don't know how many consciously realized what a powerful ritual we were all creating at that moment. I think probably a lot of us realized it. But... We created it all the same, and we all carry away the blessings and the higher consciousness from it, even those who don't know. Here, in this first ever event, this instant tradition, and I I said at the time that I thought that there would be riots if they don't do it again next year, and sure enough, they've already announced they're doing it again next year. It's like... uh, you know, when a a season ends of a highly regarded HBO show and they announce immediately that they're renewing it. That's what this was like. But it wasn't even just the most fitting beginning to the season or the most appropriate ritual observance of its meaning, but here was an eruption of evidence of the spirit that exists in this town and its people and what it is capable of. 
For my own part, I felt not merely attuned to the turning wheel of the year and connected to the universe, but looking at my fellow townsfolk and their parents and children in lanterns, the smiling faces and the warm hearts, I felt hope. Real hope. Here in the heart of the Monadnock region, this community has heart and spirit and power to an extent I never before imagined. There is hope for us yet as we lay this year to rest and prepare for the next. We may not have concluded that night in silence, but we capped the day off with some takeout Chinese food at home. I asked my son if today had been a magical day, and he looked me dead in the eye and nodded so hard it shook his entire body. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Let's take another moment. Let's really expand out into space, spread out and diffuse and a little bit subtle. It's not time just yet to make a lot of noise. Close your eyes. We're out here in the darkness and the days are like phantoms. But within us, we carry the light all through the year that matters the most. Stop now. Make sure you can see that light that you carry. It's there. You are carrying it. When the light outside is banished, or when antagonists prevent us from enjoying it, we should pivot instead to tending this light, our most precious light, the light that belongs to us because it is us, the light that will remain turned on as long as we are here, and perhaps after, too. Know this about the light, and know it about yourself. While it's cold and dismal, we will take a little time to rest and develop ourselves, our habits, and our character, and thus make the best use of this season of dormancy in the grave. Remember that when the landscape is barren and speaks of absence and death, that you who see it then become the landscape's fertility and presence in life. It's you. It's us. And we can keep that up for three months, no problem. And then the spring returns. Know this. For until then, we shall remain whole. Soak that in. Open your eyes and take a final deep breath. For whatever reason, it's not often these days that anybody tries to convert me to Christianity. I try not to take it personally. For any evangelists out there interested in taking advice from this heathen UU wizard, I'll share a secret. There's a guy out there who successfully converts me a few times every year. His name is George, and he died in 1759. Such is the power of music. There's a legend about composer George Friedrich Handel, 
that upon completing the hallelujah chorus from his Messiah, he was found alone with tears streaming down his face. I've seen all of heaven before me, he explained, according to the story. Most people insist that this never happened, which may be so. But does it matter? I mean, have you listened to it? Like, really listened? For how can anyone who listens have any doubt of it? Of course he saw all of heaven. And we know because he didn't just see it. He found a way to share it in a way that all of us can understand. Such a thing enters this world one of two ways. Either our friend George saw a heaven that exists subjectively, or he created it himself. Either way, it exists now, and he saw it. I'm definitely not just talking about that chorus either, but the whole of the epic work. I'm serious. So serious that every time I listen to it, really listen to it, I become convinced. Converted. I go completely Christian. Every time. Now, obviously, it doesn't stick. Or does it? Now, continuing our tale here, after our magnificent mystical Advent Eve experience the night before, during which we were blessed to hear excerpts from that very work performed by community members in our own church, followed in turn by that explosion of collective ritual meaning that was Peterborough's first lantern parade, Kelly and I marked the first Sunday of Advent at Symphony Hall. It was the Handel and Haydn Society's 200th annual Messiah performance run. We sat up in the nosebleeds with an obstructed view to boot, way up on the second balcony, so far forward that we couldn't really see a third of the stage, the third that was closest to us. And that really doesn't matter at all when you're at Symphony Hall. We had a perfect view of conductor Bernard Labadie and concertmaster Aislinn Noski, and there were no deficiencies whatsoever when it came to sound. There never is. I mean, this is, after all, part of the reason for being there at Symphony Hall. The first notes of the instrumental prelude sound, seemingly primordial in their power, even before the action begins, and the tears come to my eyes, like a reflex. I was a believer again, easy as a doctor bopping a knee with a mallet, and this too seems to me a fitting way to kick off Advent. This is neither magic nor direct divine intervention, though I certainly believe in both of those things, but the nature of music itself. Sound, when arranged in certain ways, moves the spirit. It transports us, it elevates us, it purges us, it heals us. Sometimes it teaches us. The reason I am so moved by Handel's oratorio is not fundamentally different from the reason I am moved by the ritual of a properly structured Grateful Dead concert. The sounds, in both cases a complex combination of words and wordless notes, they have been constructed in such a way as to allow for the experience of transcendence, if only while the sounds themselves endure. This can be said, on the one hand, to be a material phenomenon, but I also think it's way overly reductive to wave it all away as merely neurological especially in that nihilistic, just-an-evolutionary-accident sort of way some people are prone to. The Messiah, to state the obvious, tells the story of Jesus. It does so in three parts. The first covers the broader nativity story. The second gets heavy with the passion, death, and resurrection. 
The final part, to paraphrase something I heard WCRB host Chris Voss say the other night, describes the world made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. I was very familiar with this story, and indeed all of its attendant theology, long before I was familiar with this music, but Handel succeeds where your average pamphleteer will fail. His sounds bypass my mind with its filters, with its guard always up, and they speak directly to the heart and the soul, where it can really be heard and felt. Even the words, many of which are from fairly obscure works of biblical prophecy, and don't necessarily make sense in a way that tells a narrative story, they come to make their sense in a completely different way, a way that's related to, but at times distinct from their literal meanings. Again, This is exactly what we get from the Grateful Dead. It's what I got a bit later in the season, on the night of the solstice itself, when my wife sang in a magnificent solstice ritual, a modern pagan cantata, if not quite an oratorio, also hosted at our church down the road. Led by the brilliant Mary Beth Hallinan. Shout out to Mary Beth. We were transported into and through a matriarchal circle within which all the laws of the universe can be found in near perfection. Once again, transported by the arrangement of sounds, moved by the ability of the music to take both the nonverbal and the words and deliver it directly to the heart. Each of these examples participates in this alchemy in their own specific way. In turn, The Messiah has its own specific way, its own specific purpose for this alchemy, and that's where things get even more interesting. After all, in theory, by my own logic, the power of music might well be able to convince anyone of anything. And indeed it does, all the time. It may move us en masse in unison, or other times, such a collection of sound might be felt by all, universally, and yet convince each of those who feel it of something different, something unique to their individual psyches. It's 100% true. Messiah, however, is not trying to convince listeners of any old random thing, nor is it particularly suited to individually tailored reception. This is the tale of the Christ, of the humble Savior who came at a time at which the condition of hope was listed as terminal, who took the side of the poor and the vulnerable, who challenged the corrupt religious and political officials, who voluntarily came as divine light in human form, through himself bringing the light at the very moment of darkness, whose sacrifice and resurrection did that which we mere mortals cannot or would not, who taught us that the light never dies and always returns. I mean, (laughs) like, doesn't that sound relevant? Look, if I've argued it once, I've argued it a thousand times. This whole tale is near universally archetypal, but also particularly relevant to the dark days of this present age even if you are not a Christian, even if you are a Dawkins fawning atheist. You may think of me as a woo-head, willing to believe any damn supernatural garbage that comes my way. But having been raised in an evangelical church and rejecting much of what I experienced at the core of that tradition, I had, and sometimes still have, pretty major barriers to the Jesus trip, as our old friend Kesey called it. 
You'll at least note that I discussed this season in astronomical slash pagan terms at least twice as much as I rely on the Christian framework. Even to this day, I find it much less challenging. One of the arguments put forward by the Messiah is that I'm missing a great deal if I decline to explore that framework in all its riches outright. Resistance to this idea from an anti-religious perspective is to be expected. Beyond this, however, what I've found in my experience is that much of the resistance is also driven by an aversion to the idea of salvation. Either that we don't need to be saved or that we should not be looking to the divine to save us but to ourselves. In many ways, I don't even disagree. I don't believe we need salvation due to sin, whether the original kind or just the imitation variety, or that our nature as beings is inherently foul or fallen. I'm pretty firmly in the we're all born just fine camp. I don't really like the idea of reliance on the divine for solutions to problems that are pretty clearly human-driven and human-oriented. That can be a big abdication of responsibility. This is our mess, and we should be the ones to clean it, not men in the sky and their illegitimate children. And seemingly against all evidence, I remain a believer in our capabilities as humans, in our potential to maybe get it together and rise us all up to where we belong. Isn't that just it, though? Against all evidence? What evidence is there that we are capable of handling our own problems, or that we would choose to do so even if we were capable? Nothing happening currently, or really in any of recorded history, would even vaguely suggest such a thing. And while we're on the subject of evidence, when the entire scientific community agrees we, all of us, are no joke on the brink of actual extinction, how much sense does it make to say, to begin with, that we don't need saving? Clearly we do! And clearly we're not looking super likely to handle this and many other things on our own. We need no saving from sin if sin refers to eating from the bad tree and thousands of more minor individual episodes of misbehavior. We are not fallen in the sense that we are born as bad and wretched creatures. But we are also the villains in our own story, the perpetrators of our own coming demise, and it is from our own selves and our own doing that we do factually need to be saved. The position that dismisses the concept of salvation and rejects the notion that just maybe it has to come from outside of ourselves, that is actually the faith-based position. Whether it makes sense to look in the direction of the divine for a solution is another matter, of course. That's a different, you know, that's a, a further step. It's entirely possible that we do so and receive no reply. But difficult to argue we've lost much in trying. Every year, at least that's what it seems like, I refer to the Christmas song, Do You Hear What I Hear, to illustrate this point. A lot of people don't realize it's about nuclear annihilation. Really. The two dudes responsible were writing the song in October of 1962, right smack in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, and they wrote it in New York City, undoubtedly one of the first places they'd be obliterated if the uh, crisis went sour. And there was every reason to believe that it would. These guys really thought they could die at any moment. I mean, talk about the moment of darkness. 
The four simple verses of this song form a progression. The first two, once you have this context, are describing in artistic terms, well, a nuclear missile. The star with the tail as big as a kite. The song as big as an ocean. That's dark when you think about it that way. And the second two talk about the child known to have been born. The light emerging to fight back against this darkness. When you look at that last verse, when the king told the people everywhere that the child will bring us goodness and light, with the implication that only the child can do so, you get it. It can be seen as both a prayer to the on high or a a plea to humans like Kennedy. The Cuban Missile Crisis did not end in global annihilation perpetuated by two maniacal superpowers with weapons nobody should have, which is great, because otherwise it's quite likely I would never have been born. Perhaps many of you as well. But why? Was it the strength of the leaders of these two maniacal superpowers who who managed to successfully resist and thwart and outmaneuver the insane and suicidal brutality of their respective generals and other officials who somehow each found a way to back down while saving face? Acts of defiance, I would strongly suggest, which came at great cost to both men? Or was it actual divine intervention? Is there a difference is one really that much more likely than the other, or and are either of them mutually exclusive? We need it saving then, and we need it now. Now, if I remember my facts correctly, Handel's Jesus Oratorio was actually written and initially performed for Easter and or Lent, which actually makes a lot of sense. In fact, as mentioned previously, this is a narrative that extends far beyond the Christmas story, and even beyond Easter. Now, having said so, I get very much why we are drawn to listen to this during Advent, and it's all about part one. Part one lays out for us in a stunning array, with its magic beyond words and mind, the perfect presentation of the Christmas story down to every little sentiment and sensation, sometimes down even to the smells and the sounds of that time. After the instrumental warm-up that opens the show, we are immediately brought to that age of darkness, where we are struck, not as much by the darkness and gloom itself, but by the all-pervading sense of anticipation, hanging in the air like so many electrically charged particles. It's a sense that the coming of the child of light isn't and shouldn't be considered a surprise. That in that moment of terminal darkness, we ought to expect the coming, because that's how it always happens. This is very much an article of faith, but therein can be found Messiah's argument for faith itself. We know in our anticipation that the coming transformation and salvation will not be an easy process, that the roof will seem to be collapsing in on us at times. But who may abide the day of his coming, asked the first solo typically and with heart-rending beauty, performed by the countertenor, And who shall stand when he appeareth? And I mean, if such a thing were actually to transpire before our eyes, who could? This is followed immediately by the haunting chorus, He shall purify, that is just mind-blowing in its sheer musical composition, the complex harmonies and wildly vehement repetition of the simple yet powerful words, And he shall purify the sons of Levi, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. 
And here we really see George's ninja skills because he takes a passage that in reality has absolutely nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. Its words, even given his careful placement of them, hardly making any sort of rational sense to the story. And yet when you hear it, you know exactly what it means. We continue on through the story, reiterating that the people were in darkness and anticipated the coming of this light, anticipated the inevitability of all people coming around to it eventually. That's some real faith right there. We come to the birth and we celebrate it, and then we come to the part with the shepherds. You know, the part that Linus, to whom I keep making references, actually, uh, you know, he quotes in the Christmas special. And here, you're actually brought right out to the fields, and you straight up experience the angelic host appearing in the sky to sing. In a bold act of transfiguration, in fact, the choir, the very choir, these human singers you can see there, they are at that moment transformed straight up into that angelic host, and you can see it. Do you not know what it looks like? To be a shepherd out in the middle of the night and have a giant choir of holy, non-human beings show up and sing at you from the sky? Because I do. I see it every time, clear as day. Now again, if angelic choirs didn't exist before, they do now because Handel has brought them into the world. The light has returned and we all must rejoice. As promised, things get a lot a hell of a lot heavier in the second part. Returning from intermission, we are returned to our prior liminal state with a choral reiteration about the Lamb of God taking away the, Lord, the world's sin. And then we dive right into the opposite end of this tale, to the backlash against Jesus and his light, the rejection. When hearing the pleas of he was despised, that damn countertenor again, we all mourn the fact that such a thing can ever be said to have happened at all. Christ, our saving light, is beaten and abused and profaned, and we ourselves are just kind of wandering around as aimlessly as lost sheep. We feel, if not with Jesus, then very close to him, the pain, that rejection, the willing sacrifice despite it all as he is at last executed. A plot point which, interesting, it is worth noting here, is not entirely obvious to the listener of this oratorio. The death Handel indicates to us by his lack of emphasis was never much of an event at all because as soon as it was complete, the resurrection began. Now we all have a message of hope to preach. Now we may rejoice again because we know the light can never die. Not really. That the potential for salvation is always with us. Jesus the Christ, he who brought light from heaven back down to earth, can now, mission complete, ascend to heaven. And for those of you who don't know, that's what's going on in the concluding piece of part two, none other than the Hallelujah Chorus itself. You've heard it a million times, everyone says it's good, but possibly you may have, ne have never found it interesting. But do yourself a favor here. you got to find a good recording. You know, my favorite is the John Elliott Gardner version. It's out there. It's on Amazon and whatever else. Put on some headphones. Stop what you're doing and let this thing, it's like three minutes, let it wash over you. It will wash over you.
As I said at the beginning, I know beyond all doubt that Handel did see all of heaven because otherwise he could not so fully have shown it to me and to all of us in turn. You can see it too. People often mistakenly believe that this hallelujah is the conclusion to the entire piece, which is understandable, both for its sublimity and also the fact that, uh, you know, the ascension to heaven kind of is the end of what we usually think of as the Christ story. It would be a good ending piece, of course. But then in the final part, it's the shortest, though hardly the least of the three. It might be my favorite of the three, actually. Handel shows us otherwise. It's not the end of the story. How can the story possibly be said to be complete without including the part where we, the saved, can now actually do something with the light that has come down to us in our moment of deepest despair? This is the time for the soprano soloist to shine, starting with the opener, I know that my Redeemer liveth, which is indeed the starting point for the next phase, is it not? We know the light cannot be defeated, that it will never be snuffed out, that it will always return with a vengeance, that it has returned and it is with us. We know we are not doomed, that there is hope, that there is beatification, even if we choose to see it in a secular form, in store for every single one of us. I'm a sucker for a good conclusion, especially when it's in a, you know, it's a nice, tight, full circle completion And the end of this is the best conclusion I've ever encountered. It's flawless, masterful, and dare I say, divinely inspired. The bass soloist, in in fact, in our case this year, in the performance we saw, it was actually a, a bass baritone. He begins the closeout, telling us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. The twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And, you know, reading those words, just the words out loud, it doesn't come close to conveying the weight of it. As it is sung, what is emphasized again and again is the phrase right track in the middle. We shall be changed. We shall be changed. And usually, as we know, we don't want to be changed. But can we really argue that we don't need it? The trumpet shall sound, he declares, moving on, backed with actual trumpets. And in our case, I want to note here, real Baroque trumpets with no keys or even finger holes, which absolutely blows my mind. An instrument, you know, trumpet, that is featured surprisingly little throughout the entire work, only in on a handful of the tracks, if we can call them tracks. The corrupt must be made pure. What is mortal must be made eternal. That's the next step. Death can be, and has been, and will be, again, continually defeated. A lively, impassioned duet between the countertenor and tenor tells us this very thing. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? For if the light cannot be quenched, then death cannot sting, and mortality cannot win. And though we're at or past Pentecost on the calendar by this point in the story, we circle back around to the Christmas story because this is at the heart of the Advent. When the chorus returns to sing the simple phrase, but thanks be to God who, give us, who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, it's the fantastic, overlapping, multi-layered repetition of but thanks 
that we hear loudest and clearest. But thanks, but thanks, but thanks be to God. The whole thing, like a staggeringly beautiful act. The choir beginning to wrap this thing up. They're taking a moment to express literal thanks, both to God and to us, the audience. Not for just for like showing up and listening courtesy or buying the tickets and supporting the performing organization, but for sharing together this sacred power-charged ritual for collectively engaging in this three-hour journey through a tale that lives at the center of our souls. The final solo, If God Be For Us, Who Can Be Against Us, features the soprano, accompanied initially by, you know, a consistent volume of organ and strings, and which, which, but they then diminish down to the minimum, just like what sounds like maybe a single violin playing along with her soaring notes. The words in the title itself, of course, they represent a tremendously moving idea, but they're probably the least significant ones in this, in this haunting piece, the way that it's sung, in which, you know, as with He Shall Purify and so many other songs before it, the sung words transcend themselves. They transcend the hell out of themselves and their specific literal meanings. We go way above that. You know, when she sings, just soaring in the sky, it is God that justifieth. You know exactly what it's all about. Her music now, not just penetrating directly to the heart, but it's doing so like like a shot, like a speeding arrow. It happens again with the repeated line, Who makes intercession for us? Who makes intercession for us? Somehow sung with a pathos that's both confident in its triumph and solemn with repentance, with the acknowledgement of our need in all times for the aid of the divine. It takes my breath away. Just thinking about it takes my breath away. Right now. And in that moment, Perhaps even in this moment, I have no doubt whatsoever that we have nothing without someone or some force or some light to intercede on our behalf. If we can do it on our own, we aren't. We need an intercessor. Indeed, as we sat there in that performance on that first Advent Sunday, soprano Lucy Crow absolutely killed me with this like impossible high note on intercession. That word, intercession to end the solo. The air, I can, I can feel it now, was just yanked right out from within me. My eyes agape and wet. My jaw just hanging open. The full choir returns at this point, absolutely pulling out all the stops, absolutely putting everything left out there, reaching the potential seen earlier with Hallelujah, but blowing past it with the ultimate conclusion. Ultimate. The final part to feature full lyrics is a summary, you know, as a conclusion here. It's a closing statement to the mystical, holiest shit argument that's that's been made for nearly the last, like, three hours. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by his blood to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. All of this sung with as much fervor as human beings can muster and maybe more. And then kicking it up once more with blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. 
the message here is, of course, eternal. Messiah ends with Amen. The full choir continuing after a brief pause to repeat the word Amen for three and a half minutes. We conclude this piece as we do with the prayer, with Amen. And I promise you, you have never heard this word. You've never even heard it if you haven't heard this music. It starts, particularly in that Gardner recording I mentioned, go and find that, following that brief little silence with understated amens that just rise from nowhere and are joined by other voices that in turn begin understated and then rise themselves, intertwining with one another in this single ancient word now found all the cosmos and all that ever is or was or shall be. You can see and hear all of that. The strings interrupt our singers twice, as though to give the orchestra and the choir a chance to say goodbye via music, after which the voices soar to such heights that we barely notice the blaring trumpets and the booming timpani. The singers have transfigured again, once more to be the angels we all now know for sure to exist. They're right in front of us. The Baroque counterpoint seeming to swirl around and around in a great and terrible spiral, cascading towards and upwards and outwards before coming back together for the soprano section's final towering high note, cascading back down to a silence that's held just long enough to really feel it hit you good until they come back one last time with two last amens. And it's like they're screaming it straight into your soul. Amen. Amen. And thus it is finished in a manner no less complete and comprehensive and real than the conclusion to this dancing universe itself. A finish that punches me full on in the chest. I can feel it knocking me backwards practically in a physical way. I'm not even listening to it right now. I'm just talking about it. Jesus. Literally. I am in that moment, this moment, Right now, the guy, you know, who, who's been talking about this for however many minutes here, completely speechless, like unable to speak, unable to say anything, unable to respond with words, because even though I've tried valiantly here, you can't explain any of this or respond to it with words. From the depths of my soul, however, I am wholly and involuntarily compelled to respond another way with a leap to my feet and a shout of joy. All is good, all is perfect, all is light, no matter what. I have pretty much the same reaction to the final image. Like, uh, you know, uh, you know th- this image I'm talking about, the, like the amens in Messiah is displayed after just a brief silent pause, just long enough to be real in the darkness in Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. The last image that comes up, just fade in. Fade back out, just like the amen, amen. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Malik's film is about the same exact damn thing, just shown in a different configuration. This image that appears on the screen, he has dared to put an image of God. It's God, guys, on the screen. And it makes me leap from my seat in what might damn well be described as true and most sincere worship. I am a convert. And that day, clearly I wasn't the only one, because... 
the, the people in the bed with the best seats in the house, presumably people who have been to classical performances before, they couldn't restrain themselves. They began to not just clap, but actually cheer before the final notes concluded. This is, let me tell you, this is not typical decorum for a classical performance. But when the spirit moves you, the spirit moves you. I beg of you, let your spirit be moved. I beg of you. Feel the character of our age, not just its darkness and hopelessness, but its latent anticipation. The anticipation inherent to knowing, somewhere deep down, that the turning point is coming. It always comes. Take heart and have faith, whatever such things mean for you. Feel the light as it remains palpable, even when invisible in the midst of the time of greatest darkness. Know that it imminently returns and be ready. Advent is not, despite what our calendar tells us, over. Advent is just now upon us. And as with this choral work that I can hardly even believe is a thing that exists, the story will not end with the salvation or even with the resurrection, with spring or with summer. The story will include the perfection. The perfection of the third act where all of us go forth into a world of new potential and power and love made possible by the gift of divine light come down to meet us where we are. Know that the potential and power and love are real. They are real and they are coming and that they will be given to us. For each remaining year spent in the thrall of that latent anticipation, let the Advent season the dark days about the winter solstice, be a reminder that redemption is yet on the way. In such a spirit, may the blessings of the angels I can see so clearly, thanks to our long-dead friend George, carry you on as we take on the challenge, the opportunity, and the miracle that is 2019. Happy New Year. As the music that blesses the world moves through you via lasers and waves, perhaps occasionally converting you to ancient religions, be conscious of the fact that when we step back just one or two more times, we remember that we are but other parts in the world's song. The music that we hear isn't something that we are not. It's just a different part in the big orchestra. And the big orchestra is pretty awesome. There could be pretty much nothing else going on for us or for anything else, and for the big orchestra alone, everything would still be worth it. Everything is fine even when it isn't. We're all eternal and immortal, and none of us gets out of here alive. This is an ending and a beginning, and the truth is that we cross similar such thresholds on a regular, 
ordinary basis, and we sometimes don't notice because it isn't called out for recognition on the calendar. Check that stuff, though. Notice it. They happen at the same instant always, although whether or not we can always see both sides of the event is another matter. But it happens. Something ends, something begins. It's one event, one instant. Someone comes to town, somebody leaves. You can bank on this. May this be for you a better than average new beginning in the long string of new beginnings behind and before you. Make use of the time and the year will be yours. We close out with the standard and supreme prayer. Thank you for joining in this liturgy today and we will see you soon. Inspiration, move me brightly. Light the song with sense and color. Hold away despair. More than this, I will not ask. Faced with mysteries dark and vast, statements just seem vain at last. Some rise, some fall, some climb to get to Terrapin. Counting stars by candlelight, all are dim but one is bright. The spiral light of Venus rising first and shining best. Oh, from the northwest corner of a brand new crescent moon. The crickets and cicadas sing a rare and different tune. Terrapin Station. <laughs>